This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. Hey there, welcome back to Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Man, I gotta apologize. As always, it's been too long since we put a new podcast up. It's hard to uh, find time. It feels like we're all just flying all over the all over the place right now, and, and can't everyone get together? Um, but we're gonna work on that, so we'll get it out. Today is gonna be a fun podcast because we're gonna tackle one of the questions that we always get. I mean, at conferences, you know, everyone comes up afterwards. It's the first thing they ask when you're teaching. You know, before you can even get to it, which we we talk about more in our afternoon session. It's you know, can you get a proximal change with blood flow restriction? Everyone does a kind of little goofy, like choking sign, like when you put the cuff on your neck. Um, so from a rehab clinical perspective, and even from a performance perspective, if we can get changes uh, at the shoulder, at the hip, at, at the spine, which I, I'm not so sure about, uh, but definitely at the, at the shoulder and the hip, um, that, that's pretty powerful. And so there are some papers, they looked at it, some have some flaws, some people really debate them. Um, but some new ones have come out with more of a clinical bend to them that uh, might give some credence to it. So today we're going to go over that, some of the theories, um, and, and also, you know, kind of what the literature says and how we might apply this, at least from the clinical perspective. Um, as always, if you like this podcast, please go on to uh, iTunes or wherever you get your pods and, and subscribe. And, and if you really like it, uh, we, we love to hear good feedback. Go to info at owensrecoveryscience.com if you'd like to submit some questions. If you read it on air, um, we'll send you a T-shirt. We didn't get to questions today just because we, as usual, went kind of long because apparently I, I blabber a lot. Um, and also, if you're interested and you're not part of our certified providers, go to owensrecoveryscience.com. We have links to courses all over the world right now. Um, and, and so you can be part of our group of, of folks who have gone through the certification. And, and as part of that, it's not just uh, that you go to a course and it's done. We, we really want to make sure that people do it right um, and they have support because, man, this stuff changes. It feels like every week. And, and so uh, we have an inner circle, which is just our certified providers where we can ask questions with each other. And, and we'll, we'll tackle everything from with neurologic conditions or this person has a clot or this person has um, some some sort of um, contraindication, particularly we have a science advisory board that has orthopedic surgeons and cardiothoracic surgeons, uh, tourniquet experts, BFR experts, uh, cardio, cardiopulmonary experts that can also chime in with questions that we might not have a, a, an answer in the literature. And so that's, that's just part of what we like to offer along with um, you have access to, to my email, to our team's emails with, with any specific questions. So we really like to, to keep this as a, as a family that's trying to learn uh, how to do this the best way possible and, and stay up to date on it because it's pretty cool and a pretty powerful thing. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Um, just kind of getting our, our group back together from, from the road warriors that we are um, over the last few weeks. So where's everyone been, man? I, I want to hear uh, what you guys have been up to. Ben, what's up with you recently? Well, um, I just got back from the, the frozen north, and that is Michigan. Uh, I had two courses this last weekend up in uh, Ann Arbor and East Lansing. Uh, the one in Ann Arbor was an open course at, at MedSport, uh, which is attached to University of Michigan. It's, it's with their their medical group. 
Uh, very cool facility, great people up there. Um, and then East Lansing for the Michigan State group, we had the the private course. I had Brett and Watney helping me out with those. He's from up in South Dakota, and um, yeah, I got to make the the drive from East Lansing to Detroit in a nice snowstorm. So that was a lot of fun for for a Texan that doesn't drive in snow to see some people losing control and, and, uh, you know, drive 30 miles an hour the whole way on the highway. Cool. Uh, and then, yeah, right before that I was, uh, in the, you know, Phoenix area to work with the giants at their spring training facility to train their medical and strength conditioning staff. So very cool to be with that group over there. Um, already had worked with, uh, one of their physical therapists. So get the, got the rest of the staff trained up. So, uh, fun to break those guys off a little bit and, yeah. and let the SNC guys get a little nuts in the lab and, and play around with some BFR. I, lo- I love going to the spring training, man. It's a blast out there. Kyle, right. what have you been up to? Kyle? Me? Yeah. Me? Oh, my bad. I didn't hear you. <laughs> I, I lost. It's these old ears, man. I don't know. I hadn't had coffee yet. And early out here in SoCal. Uh, we had a big we had a big LA course uh, right at the beginning of the year on All January. All the LA courses are big, man. Twelfth, man. Yeah, they're fun. I mean, we had like thirty four people there, um, guys from the Padres, Angels. My buddy uh, who runs Ignite Physio down in uh, Orange County. He so you got to follow him on Instagram because you just never know what that guy's gonna do. He he runs a a build a booty class at a CrossFit <laughs> gym, and then just yesterday he's he's working with a pole dancing group. Nice. <laughs> like, so I, I messaged him all the time. Like, dudes. what on earth? You got the most interesting yeah. people you're working with. Man. So I've been so eventually we're gonna have some some. Uh, Maybe we'll get him to do some BFR pole dancing videos. I don't Follow know. Follow him on Instagram right now. I've been saying for a while, we, we've got the ability to do Brazilian butt lift by BFR. I mean, that's yeah. yeah. part yeah, of the scheme, yeah, yeah. right? So, so he's a great, and he's just a, he's a fantastic dude. Really, really sharp guy. I love too, because you, you'll see him treating just, you know, run of the mill people. He's not one of these guys posting all these fancy high-end athletes that he treats and those are the only people he works with so he's he's out there doing the real the real dirty work taking care of people that have real serious problems so he's fun but anyway uh we had we had that course here uh i was in of course we were all at csm um a couple weeks ago and then i did a course for santa clara university up in san jose which was a lot of fun some some sharp sharp folks there uh and then i'm headed out friday to to new orleans to do a private private course in new orleans eat some eat some crawfish and uh and, and get some maybe some beignets we'll see kyle man uh, la new orleans yeah i'm staying warm I, look, yeah. it's raining it's raining in la that's basically <laughs> like 10 feet of snow in it's the driving all over minnesota and, yeah or, or yeah. I, Michigan. you know it rained the day i had my course in 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 uh in orange county so i, I had oh, to man, i'm sorry i had to take chairs and rent a car it was you know it was, oh, man. It was really rough yeah <laughs> you mean uh, I, when you when you rented the car the car rental place was open when you got there yeah yeah Zach, let's hear let's hear your stuff man what? <laughs> yeah, well didn't didn't do much at csm besides you know go touristing around with kyle to look at the monuments that was yeah. the highlight of the trip i mean getting up at five in the morning just and we had to yeah. wait until friday 
um, until the government was reopened so we could go see the monuments and the museums. That was that seemed to be uh, it was a little chilly. So, you know, Kyle was fully prepped with isotoners. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, he was outfitted. And so that, that was CSM for me. Uh, and then uh, last week went to uh, Chicago. I thought the polar vortex had already passed. Well, it looked like they got a, a pretty massive ice storm. And so I had to reroute the flight. Then 20 minutes from landing, find out that the runway is closed where I'm supposed to be. So we end up in Minneapolis. And then finally get to Milwaukee at about 3.30 in the morning. You see, Kyle, I had already uh, rented the car, but when I got to the airport at 3.30 in the morning, the place was closed. Um, so I had to get an Uber from Milwaukee to Chicago and, and got to the course um, about 30 minutes before it started. And, uh, and then again, Kyle, Friday, you know, Ben's traveling to Michigan. I go to minnesota um negative 15 when i get there uh, my contact tells me you know he sends me a text or an email it says hey just one word of advice dress warm um it's going to be negative 18 today but don't worry tomorrow is going to warm up and i look at the weather for saturday it's still like negative four and so i'm like i don't know what world this guy lives in Heatwave is warming up. Yeah, but coming from Atlanta, I was like, dude, this, this is bad. But yeah, I mean, I yeah. sent you my isotoners. <laughs> I mean, you the, yeah. the, the, that, I needed I needed some isotoners, and then you know, so I had another experience in, in Minnesota. This car that I rented in Minnesota didn't have like regular cruise control, so the the drive from Minneapolis to where I needed to go was like three hours. And so it had radar cruise control. And so um, what this was, was it had sensors in front of the car that would determine how close that you were to the, uh, your approaching car. And then it would cut off the cruise control. Well, the sensors were frozen over. And so the cruise control didn't work the whole trip. Um, frozen over. Is that, is that frozen. a word? Yeah. Frozen over. Right. Frozen over. Frozen Kyle. I mean, does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, I just want to know what you're saying. I don't it, understand. It's not, if it's not scientific terminology, then it, it doesn't matter. So the thing that I've learned from this is don't ever book travel with Zach going yeah. from one place to another because it's bound to have problems. Yeah. Hey, the, the important <laughs> thing with all this is I have the, the course has went as planned. No, okay. He always yeah. makes it happen. Yeah. He might get that. You right. Right. We, we make it happen. We, 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 we adapt and overcome. <laughs> and so, yeah. And, and just uh, to touch base on it too, CSM was a couple of weeks ago. It was, it was great. We were all together in DC. Um, Dr. Patterson and I did a BFR and IPC talk. And, and, and that was a, I, I think a success. We had what, 750 chairs in the room and, and uh, told them that probably wouldn't be enough. And they had to bring in 250 more and they still didn't have enough. And people sitting all on the floor all over the place and they had to put it out on, uh, on this TVs on, on, in another room. So the, the BFR kind of um, enthusiasm in our profession is, is really taken off. Um, so it was cool to see all of that there and, and get everybody together at CSM. And Extremity War Injuries um, was also that week. And so it was before CSM. 
which was awesome. That is a combination of AOSSM, which is the, the Orthopedic Sports Medicine Society, OTA, which is the Orthopedic Trauma Association, um, the Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, and the Society of Military Orthopedic Surgeons all get together um, in D.C. and we present on kind of what where we are with things like BFR or other orthopedic things, regenerative medicine. And then we have steering committees where we all get together after our talks and decide, you know, this is kind of the direction we think things should go and, and maybe see if we can get funding pushed for certain studies. And so that was, that was awesome. The impactfulness of that with big decision makers and then the enthusiasm of everyone at CSM was a blast. And then of course, lots of after CSM, partying and drinking and the real the real action happens at two in the morning with bourbon in the bar um, where the decisions really are made so so that was awesome um and, and then what we got stuff coming up ben you're in at andrews institute what this weekend is that right yeah so i'll, I'll go to plano this weekend and, and have the andrews children's health and then the next weekend i'm going up to the the chicago land area so hopefully the the winter weather will cooperate so if anyone's listening, the, the one this weekend in Dallas, I don't think it's sold out yet. Um, so if, if you're interested in get certified in BFR and, and, and get into this, um, you, you still got time. The one in Chicago is, is full. It's sold out, I think. Um, yep. Yeah. And then we have one coming up in Georgia, right, um, this month? Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, that's next weekend. Um, at, uh, it's an open course in Marietta, just outside of Atlanta. And then I'm um, headed to Detroit. Um, this weekend coming up so to talk with a, a hospital system up there. So. Nice. so this month, if you're in Atlanta or you're in the Dallas area, there's still time, still some room. And, and also, we can't forget our, our folks doing this with us worldwide. So we just did the Jordanian military uh, last weekend. Um, those guys love it. And we've been working with them a whole lot. And uh, other, you know, up in Canada, we've had some courses. We're about to have one in Barcelona with our with our friends down there that are that are going to start training throughout that region. Um, and, and then we uh, also just had one in, in London not too long ago and, and got Arsenal trained up, which is cool. So we're starting to get those Premier League teams coming on board. Cool. All right. You guys yeah. ready to get into this to this proximal mm -hmm. big bear of a question. Yeah, I want to make sure we, we don't miss something on uh, the whole CSM where, you know, we had a guest appearance at the booth by by a researcher named Luke Hughes from over in the UK. Oh, yeah. Mr. Weak Sauce himself yeah. was yeah. able to come and talk some BFR with us for a little bit. All so. he did was walk around carrying his research paper. Showing well, he kept everybody. showing yeah. people that systematic review. Yeah. Yeah. Every, every I, I think group he, of, he of posed, yep, well, Yeah, he posed for, for a picture. Yeah, um, yeah. With, with some folks that uh, recognized his study and couldn't believe I, I it was he, actually him. Really? I think he was trying to pay people to take his autograph. Well, he is Dr. Hughes. That? He became Dr. Hughes right yeah, before yeah. he traveled. Right. And anytime I walked by, I just saw him trying to talk to the cute girls. Right. Um, so, was, exactly. Yeah, so I, I think I saw where his motives were. All right, man, let's get into proximal. All right. All right, fellas. It's been a long time. Long, long time since we've got together for a podcast. We've been together a lot and all over the place, but but dang, man, finding time to schedule this stuff when, it, when everyone's on an airplane somewhere has, has been tough. So so welcome back, everyone. We got the, the, the crew back here to get into some really um, deep and potentially contentious discussions today on Proximal. So we've got Ben Weatherford here um, with me in San Antonio. 
Uh, Dunkel is going by smashing freaking weight on his um, moniker on our <laughs> meeting here. And, and Kyle is tardy, not tardy. The light is shining off the top of my head um, where he is out there in California. So uh, welcome, guys. And, and so we're going to talk about proximal. What happens above the cuff or in another part of the body? When, whenever you're teaching this stuff or presenting at conferences, it is always like one of the first questions people have is, Okay, what about above the cuff? How can I get the shoulder? How can I how can I get the hip? You know, people make the joke of you put it around your neck or whatever. And and so there's a lot of kind of back and forth from physiologists of, of what they think happens or doesn't happen. Um, and, and some of it might just be uh, getting too mechanistic and, and just saying, well, let's just measure the changes and see that it happens and, and maybe not fight over why it's happening. But but everyone wants to, wants to know why. So um we're, we're going to get into this today. So I, I think let's let's discuss kind of the older papers first. Um, so like Yasuda um, was one of the first people who, who started kind of tracking this with some bench press studies. And so first off, everyone is on this. It's systemic. And you, you they, everyone jumps on things like growth hormone or you're driving muscle protein synthesis mTOR, you've got all this anabolic drive, and so it's got to be systemic, systemic, systemic. And from the physiological standpoint, that may not be a real driver of, of growth in other regions. And so what Yasuda had is, you know, low load bench press or low load bench press with a tourniquet on if you measure muscle activation on a proximal muscle, which was the pec, EMG activity went up. And so that isn't systemic. If you're just seeing a, an increased drive in EMG, then something is making that muscle work harder. And, and so the first theory that, that people kind of go to when you look at that is a downstream fatigue. Can I fatigue the triceps when I'm doing bench press because I got a cuff on and, and you can make the downstream muscles get so fatigued that the proximal muscles have to work harder, Right. And so I, I guess from y'all standpoint, what do y'all think on the downstream fatigue theory? Do you think it's something that is like that is our main one we got to look at? And, and that's an easy one to go after. If I'm going after the hip, let's this downstream fatigue, the quad and the glute has to work harder in, in like a multi-joint exercise. What's your thoughts on downstream fatigue? I think, I mean, for me personally, you know, the one thing I get from that is, and we can see the same thing in, in other studies where it might show a remote effect is, is no matter what, if we're trying to have an effect on a muscle group that's proximal to the placement of the cuff, it needs to be involved in the stress that we're creating with the exercise. So if it is, you know, like the Yasuda study or the Abe two-week, you know, squat and hamstring curl study, you know, the, the muscles that we're trying to target with the hypertrophy have to be significantly stressed with the movement that we're putting on and the exercise involved in the, the application. Right. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think, um, you know, the data, it has to be somewhere around in that 20% of MVC mark. Um, and where I pull from that from is we see these proximal changes in the bench press and with the pec, and then we see it also with squats, um, it, with the glutes, but then you take an exercise with walking. Mm. We don't see any change into the glute. And right. I think, I think the big driver of that is because the glutes 
aren't really active, um, you know, during low level walking. Um, so the, the muscle group that we're targeting has to have a certain amount of activation and simply putting the cuff on a limb and doing an exercise isn't going to make a non-active muscle active. Right. That, and, and I think that's this this key. And, and, and Jeremy and, and, and Dr. Abe in that ACSM paper that we put out, we talked about the proximal muscles from what we've seen. They're probably going to have to be involved with at least a 20 to 30 percent yeah. type 1 RM. And, and so that's a big problem if we're talking clinical here because everyone's like, hey, I want to go glute on this FAI who, who just had this labral um, you know, repair or I've had, I got a rotator cuff. That, that ain't going to happen. Right. And, and so if we're saying a downstream fatigue effect, then you're probably talking later phase clinically where you can put some load on that squat and, and really fatigue out the, the quad, but also get activation of the glute to, to really start to see some changes. Right. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. And I guess, so we, we got to talk about the other paper. So obvious paper, um, break it down. It was what, it was two weeks high frequency, yeah. right? Six. Yeah. Six, six days a week training twice a day for two weeks, um, squat and then leg curls. Right. At 20%, right. Or 30%. It was yeah, at 20, 20%. And so that's some things that we have to point out as well. You know, you look at these papers in the literature, you're like, damn, that's a nice change. Um, but that's six days a week, twice a day. Um, at 20% load. And, and, and those of us who've actually done it or have patients do it or anyone else at 20, 30% 1RM, that it's a beast. It's tough. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. Squats, squats at that are, are pretty challenging. Yeah. And then what, yeah, what, what was Abe's results on that? Yeah. So um, hypertrophy standpoint, uh, quads hypertrophied, um, 7.7% glutes for 9.1 and then the hamstrings were 10. Right. So yeah. I, I really think that the hamstrings, the reason why we see the, the greatest change in the hamstring was from the, the leg curl. Yeah. Um, typically hamstrings aren't going to be overly active, uh, with, with a squat. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. They just kind of threw a leg curl in there as well. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that was, that was odd, but but still, almost ten percent change in the glute on on their reimaging from doing that. Um, yeah, and and strength change as well. So they were stronger on their one RMs, right? On on squat and hamstring curl. Correct. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so um, then, I guess you know, if we're talking this downstream fatigue thing, the the big question becomes: Okay, how do I if I if I am going to be able to put some load on? How do I target something like the rotator cuff? You know, what do you what are you downstream and fatiguing when you do the when you're doing like an external rotation? There's not a downstream external rotation muscle. What what do you guys think when you've done this or seen it with patients or, or is there a potential that something's fatiguing out, making the cuff work harder? Uh, I think there does seem to be something happening because um, we do see folks having more fatigue um when they're adding the cuff versus versus not you know the the, you know the one theory that keeps kind of gets floated out there is that sort of that backflow effect i think when i when i talk about it i i talk about like maybe there's this retrograde kind of restriction i make an analogy with like a like if you're pouring water in a funnel at some point you know that water starts backing up that funnel and, and and if you've got a cuff on a on a proximal limb potentially that that's what's going on i mean there's 
I think we kind of chatted about this before. There's literally like nothing out there that's demonstrated that's actually what's happening. So it's important to kind of keep it in context. But such an easy um, study to pull off. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, getting to do that and, and measure blood above and below. And, and it seems like yeah. we should be able to pull that off. Yeah, because like yeah. Dr. Elitrosh last year when we were together at that little mini conference, you know, he's like, I love it on my shoulders. I'm seeing changes. The patients are like, yeah. it feels like it's it's definitely just after one bout different and better. And he's like, it's backflow. I know it's got to be backflow. And it's, you know, yeah. so for him, that was his, like, like, like his theory when he says, I talk to people about it. I just tell him, I think we're really backing the blood up where you're just not getting enough into that proximal muscle because we've, we've clogged the plumbing up down downstream. So, right. Yeah, I mean, that group in particular has really been excited about what they've seen from their shoulders. So folks that are doing BFR versus groups that are not. So, well, yeah, well, I mean, there's, Say again. What'd you say? I, I didn't hear. What I, I said that that group in particular, the the Curlin Job group, has been pretty interested in what they've been seeing from their groups that are doing BFR with shoulders in specifically yeah. versus their their PT groups that are not doing BFR. So yeah, well, I was with Dr. They, Robin West, who's the Nationals team doc yesterday, and, and the Redskins doc, and she same thing. She's just like, and she's had a shoulder problem and has done it, and she's like, man, there's something really happening at the shoulder and, and I love it with our baseball people and, and our patients as well. So everyone's seeing something and you can tell, man, if you do like scaption with one arm with the cuff on and one arm without, I mean, it's night and day. You ask anyone, it's like, wow, my shoulder is definitely working way harder on this, on this side with the cuff on. Which right. Means, duh, but you, you feel it in, in the cuff, you feel it in, in the shoulder musculature itself. Right. I mean, I, I think initially for me, I thought it was just, you know, potentially a function of we're doing a high volume of reps with pretty short rest periods. Maybe it's just that we're doing, you know, this this significant exercise that's probably more stress and reps than what we were doing before. But doing your own work match control, it, it feels very different. I mean, the recovery is different. There seems to be more of that metabolite response and more fatigue on the limb that has a cuff versus one that doesn't. I mean, I think that's it's like the the Bowman study that just came out and showing a difference with, you know, the hip doing some sideline abduction. I mean, there's right. not a downstream fatigue happening there. Exactly. We don't have this big accessory movement that's, you know, we're getting a lot of help distal to the cuff. It's, you know, there has to be something different about it. Yeah. We'll talk about Eric's study in a minute, um, as well as, as Bradley's shoulder study that he's done. So, okay, then you move into it's systemic. There's got to be this systemic effect going on. It's so kind of break down everyone, what your thoughts are on, is this a, a systemic thing? And should people, you know, we had a, a guy we all know saying, well, I just put it on the arm and have them do all their lower extremity rehab with it on the arm for like 30 minutes, keep, keeping it on the whole time. It's like, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure, man. But um, what, what do you guys think from the systemic standpoint? What do you think are the drivers if it's saying systemic? Yeah. So I, I think, uh, from that standpoint, one, I think you're going to get a much better effect if you occlude in the lower extremity versus the upper extremity. I think it's a blood flow. I think it's an amount of blood flow, and, and that's going to drive a hypoxic response that, that contributes. Um, from that standpoint, one of the, um, the the Abe, the squat paper, you know, what they specifically looked at was the change in IGF levels and more of resting IGF levels, not an acute following the workout bout. So they, they trained for 12 days and then they did the, uh, 
the lab draw on day 14. And what we see is about a 23% increase in IGF levels. Mm -hmm. We think IGF plays a role, not just in muscle protein synthesis, but actually um, contributing to the proliferation differentiation and ultimately the fusion of satellite cells. Yeah. And so what we get out of say six months of uh, moderate to high intensity resistance training with both males and females is about a 19% increase in IGF levels. And so what we see is this resting levels of IGF um, are a little bit higher um, with the cuff on. So maybe that helps to um, explain some uh, a systemic change that we see. Yeah. So in, in so Matarame's study, let, let's discuss that one because that was kind of the first one, got people kind of worked up at ACSM years ago. Um, so one arm, they call it light curl, but what is 50% one RM, right? It was, yeah, right? It was, yeah, they drink 50% of one RM. Yeah, so that's not really light, um, but lightish. And, and then the other arm, they did nothing. And then they finished it by doing squats um, and they're without cuffs on and depending on which group you're randomized to. And it was 20% 1RM squats. And then what they wanted to see is, was there a change in the upper extremity that didn't have a cuff on at all? And they, and they found a change. So the arm that didn't do anything, there was no change. So there's no free ride, no free lunch. Uh, you're going to have to probably do something to get an effect. But the arm that did do the curls in the BFR group got bigger and it got stronger in the bicep and they were doing bicep curls. Right. Yeah. So that got everyone like bullshit. You're full <laughs> of it. Um, and, and, and that was this. OK, it's all systemic. They they measured kind of things that maybe weren't that big of a deal. What They measure like noradrenaline, um, growth hormone, growth hormone yeah. and. You know, that if, if you're going to put your hat on, like these are the drivers of this proximal or systemic effect, those probably aren't aren't the real ones. And that might be why people also got worked up about it. Um, but but it happened. Right. And and so then Warmington group over in Australia, I, I think, kind of disproved that study or, or just to validate it, um, repeated it pretty much same same design and found that the, the arm again got stronger in the cuff group. They didn't reach significance for hypertrophy. Um, it, it, I, I don't remember what their what their values were, but it looked like it was kind of trending that way. But then this other paper came out and, and kind of confirmed it, right? Yeah. The, the other thing with that Warmington paper was they trained for two weeks less as well. Mm -hmm. so they, they trained for eight weeks versus the uh, Matterham study uh, trained 10 weeks. Right. So. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, the, the additional training sessions over those two weeks, you know, I, I don't know, but. Right. Well, and they did two exercises on the legs instead of just one. Also, they did the knee extension and the hamstring curl instead of doing a, a multi-joint in the squat. Right. And so if and, you're saying, I want to get this big systemic type thing, a multi-joint is probably where you're going to go, right? Uh, right. And it was interesting. I mean, they did a 60% pressure, which we know, you know, from the limited research out there on the differences in pressure and what happens at 60%, you know, probably creates some stimulus, but maybe not as big of a stimulus as what we would get at something like an 80% pressure. So what do y'all um, think? What do you think's uh, the systemic target pathway? Is it IGF? Is it satellite cells? Is it just freaking hypoxia? Yeah. All, all of the above. All of the above. Um, I mean, it seems problem, like all, right? we try and break it down into individual things and it's, it's always all of the above. Yeah. Because all these things happen in isolation, so we can target one and say that we're getting this significant change, you know. And I think that's that's the the thing is we really don't have 
Yeah, that was Ben's sarcastic yeah, voice right there. That was all. Yeah, sarcasm. if anyone didn't catch that, in yeah. case you didn't catch that, that was yeah. sarcasm. <laughs> isolated. Well, this I, is all in isolation. Why don't you guys test <laughs> everything? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna hang my hat on one thing creating the the big change for us. And uh, I mean, to me, it's yeah. I think there's there's obviously it seems like there's a lot to be had uh, potentially with you know this hormonal or systemic response. Um, you know, it, it really looks like you. you can't say there's not a systemic change and there's an elevation of hormones typically associated with that. So is that truly a, a direct correlation? We don't, we don't know. Um, obviously if you can do something to upregulate and incorporate satellite cells, it looks like that's probably the huge win for us, whether that's hormonally driven or not, uh, looks like it might be, mm-hmm. but we really still don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what, it looks like there needs to be you know, significant stress in the area. You know, looking at the cook rugby player study, it's, you know, putting it on the legs, even, you know, doing the squat, same, same exercises in both groups, squats, bench press and pull-ups. The group that had cuffs on the legs for the exercise had a significant increase in their one rep max in squat uh, or one rep max on bench press, I should say. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I don't really know that we can say that there, we know what's driving it, but it looks like there's a lot of systemic potential just have to have significant stress. And then the whole, you know, passive cuff application, I think, you know, we probably need a, a significant amount of hypoxia on a non-exercising limb to have a remote effect. And to me, with all the literature there on putting the cup on the exercising limb, I feel like that's always the better target if we're going to be applying exercise within session. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I completely agree. I mean, I think you got to if, if you're going to try and target a limb that you're not occluding for whatever reason, um, you have to train that limb. We, I don't think we're going to get this carryover into a non-exercising limb if we're trying to do anything remotely. Um, yeah, and just like Ben said, I do think that there's a, a hypoxia um, aspect to that. Whether that, you know, and what triggers or what does hypoxia do, whether it's, you know, the contributor to VEGF, um, I think that may be a potential, but uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so we, I touched on this a little bit right before our call, too. Extremely war injuries a couple of weeks ago in D.C., we had a regenerative medicine session, and, and Josh Winky got up, who's kind of our regen expert down here at our base, and, and, and he said, no matter what we're doing, if we're targeting quality muscle changes, you have to start looking at either pharmacological targets that we can come up with or things like BFR that, that drive the satellite cell pool. And so the, the satellite cell, you can call it the muscle stem cell or whatever, is the key to, to all good things for, for long-term muscle repair and muscle growth. And, and so you were, you were mentioning, Zach, that hypoxia might even replenish that pool from, from what you've seen. Yeah. So, so there, there's a paper out there that looked at basically when we, when we create hypoxia, that it'll actually replenish the satellite cell pool. And that's one of the important things, you know, cause we talk about in, in the course about this ability to, um, proliferate stem cells or mu- these muscle stem cells. Well, well, the problem with that is if all we're doing is replenishing stem cells, we're going to drain the stem cell pool. Yep. So we have to, so it's great to do that because we think that, you know, ultimately some of these we're going to fuse to the fiber, but the problem is if we don't replenish that pool, we start to de- deteriorate the pool. And that's a problem that we see with these ACLs. Right. Um, so we see this decrease in stem cell or satellite cell pool. 
Um, so hypoxia may be a driver that we can actually boost the satellite cell content, which is what Nielsen showed in their paper. So we see, you know, in, in eight training days of high volume training, but, you know, after the eighth day of training, we have this um, about a 290% increase in the satellite cell pool. So that that's huge. And so the question, you know, ultimately is, well, what drives that, that increase in the, in the satellite cell pool? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and before we get any further on this, I, I can sense Kyle getting bent out of shape because I remember from our discussion last night, we need to make sure that we differentiate between the satellite yeah, cell response yeah. and the myonuclear accretion or the addition of myonuclei to the fiber, yeah. which is really what we're we're getting after because the you know yeah. proliferation you know looks important because that's how we have more to incorporate, yeah. but. The incorporation probably being even more important to say that we've got more places for protein synthesis to happen over time. Yeah, agree yeah. on all that. I was going to back up to Zach where you're going with the hypoxia. I, I I'm suspect that the theory ultimately is these satellite cells live kind of close to these capillary beds. This is ultimately some sort of a hormetic response. We induce this hypoxia. Well, and, and Josh there corrected needs to be some me on that. A, we had a meeting later again? on, and Josh corrected me that. Okay. That there isn't really more of an abundance near the capillary beds from from what he what he knows. Okay. Um, and, and so we were told differently and, and have seen differently. But he said it's, it's basically throughout the muscle and it just lives quiescently just right outside the fibers. And, and there's not a difference at the capillary beds, although we've been told by other people differently. Yeah, and and I think one of maybe this is where the confusion comes in. What we see in both young and old is the satellite cells that become most active and start to proliferate and differentiate are closest to the capillary beds. I think that may be the 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 confusion piece with that. So we see that both in in the elderly and in young, and that may be one of the the drivers of why we can actually. Um, see such the great changes we do with the elderly folks is because the increase in VEGF that leads to a greater change in capillary density, density, um, then maybe we have a a greater ability to activate um, muscle stem cells. Right, right. And it probably has to be some pretty good hypoxia um, and maintained hypoxia as well. You know, like the, the Nielsen paper, they're using... Zimmer, basically the Delphi, the, the ones we use, these these surgical cuffs that maintain pressure, hold a strong deep pressure. These pump-up ones, you know, they drift, so you're going to start with pressure, and then it's going to drop down. So Because that's kind of in our next thing with, like, remote ischemic preconditioning. They're basically getting into full hypoxia and having sparing of muscle, cardiac muscle, just by putting it on a limb. And so it's this, it's this deep hypoxia, potentially, this driver of change, either less damage, less breakdown, or more drive of something like myogenic stem cell incorporated into into the fiber. Agree? Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. know Kyle's shaking his head again, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I agree. Yeah, that all sounds good to me. Well, and then okay, so based on what I think, I think Zach makes an interesting point about you know perhaps it's you know those satellite cells sitting next to those capillary beds those are the ones that are potentially moving around and responding to, to the stimuli. That's, I mean, that is an interesting point. And who knows, it'd be, it'd be interesting to talk to, it was it Josh, you said, Johnny, that, yeah. um, so that'd be interesting to maybe pose that question to him, see what he thinks. Well, and here's, 
really where we found out that you have to have this this abundant satellite cell pool for muscle to ever change is when we're trying to regrow it. So when we put an extracellular matrix into a lost muscle tissue, there wasn't a, a satellite cell pool. And, and so what happens is you lose a chunk of muscle, you lose this large amount of satellite cell. And uh, matrix, which has a, some sort of stimulus to make things regrow, would make fibrosis grow. Um, and it wasn't making muscle grow. So now we can take muscle from elsewhere and, and basically grind it up and it's just full of a ton of satellite cells. And then you shove that into the lost muscle and, and replenish the pool. And so basically what Josh said is we just have to replenish the pool um, to be able to, to make the muscle respond again because the satellite cells were key. And, th and that's where you do this combination with blood flow restriction. So you keep proliferating more and more satellite cells from outside where, where that defect was. You know, but, but it's like the case in prehab paper. Um, you know, this loss of angiogenesis was a driver of atrophy, it looks like, the first four weeks, right? Yeah, so. the, the preconditioning, not conditioning paper. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. <laughs> I don't know why. That, that paper is fascinating, though. It is, yeah. you know. So maybe there's an ischemic reperfusion injury from surgery. You have less capillary beds in the thigh, and you lose muscle endurance, and you see this atrophy happens. And then you precondition. For, for just a few rounds, what was it, like five sessions or something pre-surgery? Five uh, sessions over eight days, I think. Days. Yeah, so basically they, they say preconditioning. It was, it, was, it was really just BFR exercise. Um, right. Again, at pretty high hypoxic level, surgical tourniquet on there, Delphi. And, um, and they saw angiogenesis come back quicker in that group after surgery and less atrophy at four weeks. Um, so the muscle was preserved from an endurance standpoint or, or from an atrophy standpoint because of the increase in angiogenesis. Now, at 12 weeks, both groups were equal, but they didn't do any BFR post-surgical. You know, so I think because someone pointed out, well, at 12 weeks, they were both equal. But it's like, well, yeah, but I, I don't think I would have my people just do five BFR sessions pre-op and then say, OK, now just go back to standard of care. Um, I think we would have driven a lot more action and seen some yeah, changes and, in 12 weeks. And you have those, those Ashish Betty papers showing that you've, you've got to really kind of fight these, you know, TGF beta pathways postoperatively yep. as well. So, yeah. Yeah. um, if, if you've set them up to win preoperatively and then you take it away postoperatively, like, um, you're going to have a hard time getting people to enlist in that, that study at some point. Right? Yeah. Yeah, for so. sure. So then the, uh, the question clinically based on if we're talking this systemic from from Warmingtons and Madarames is if I got a rotator cuff repair and I can't really do anything to it, then you potentially could do your light rotator cuff exercises and then throw them on a multi-joint type exercise like a leg press or something like that under BFR afterwards to kind of repeat what those studies said. What do you guys think of that like clinical approach? I, I love the idea. You know, I, I think, you know, a lot of people struggle with it because, you know, good luck billing for your time on lower extremity exercise when you've got an upper extremity pathology in the clinic. But, yeah, you know, physiologically, it makes a lot of sense to me. You know, we always talk about the old bodybuilder principle of do heavy squats if you want big biceps. And it, it seems to be some validity there. Yeah. What do, you, what do you guys think from a clinical standpoint? Is that something you guys do at all, Zach and Kyle, or? I usually try to coach my people up to go train heavy in the gym, honestly. You know, like if I've got somebody that 
Um, I, I mean, you know, you just never know. It's always like patient dependent. Um, but you know, if I've got somebody that will, will get in there in the gym and work hard, I just make sure they're doing that on their lower extremities. Um, I haven't, uh, I, w- I don't want to say I haven't, but it's been uncommon for me to really kind of go after, mm-hmm. um, that systemic response. Cause it's hard to fit into a clinical day. You know, if I had well, just an hour and a half with each patient, you know, and, and carte blanche, then hell yeah, we're getting after it. You know, that's why I say, man, like if my friend gets hurt, they're going to do great, you know, but the constraints of the current system also kind of limit what you have to do. So, I mean, so often, like for example, with a shoulder, man, crap, you're just trying to get the range of motion out of that thing, you know, because mm-hmm. um, they're painful. It, it, you know, it's, it's just a challenge there um to get to the point where you could even think about asking them to do 75 repetitions of something yeah um so that there's a there's a number of barriers you know i think in the clinic to applying some of this stuff i think it's important that we have a good foundation um in our reasoning so that we're able to apply it when when we are presented with those opportunities but man there's a lot of a lot of limitations to applying some of these things in reality, you know, what do you think, Zach? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with Kyle. I mean, sometimes I'll definitely try to, if it's an upper extremity issue and try to basically do something that incorporates the uh, lower extremity. But in other cases, I mean, we've had the, some of the patient populations that we work with are CrossFitters, Olympic lifters, things like that. So if it is like, I mean, we, we've had CrossFitters with shoulder surgeries that are um, that go back to CrossFit, you know, shortly after surgery and start doing like heavy sled drags and things like that. Um, basically where you can take the upper extremity completely out of it, but still work the legs. Um, so yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. And so it is, you know, if, if you have carte blanche, you have all the time in the world, you're one of these pro teams, college teams, um, and, or clinically you can just do it. Then it, it's, probably from what we've seen in the literature makes sense. If they're already starting some like light rotator cuff strengthening exercises, um, then go ahead and and have them do a finisher, throw the cuffs on their legs and, and go do leg press or something like that. If if you can do it, you, you get away from the risk of I'm, I'm running with a sled and I've got my arm in a sling bouncing it around and all of that. Or, you know, if, if you're looking at grandma Smith, who really you would love for her to get in the gym and do this stuff, but she's probably not. Um, then this might be a, a, a nice kind of extra adjunct and, and you're making grandma Smith's legs stronger, <laughs> which, which right. didn't hurt either. Um, but yeah, so, but that, that is a problem that, that, you know, how to apply that clinically, that rotator cuff trial that, that we're hoping to get going up there in Minnesota. Um, we'll, we'll maybe have some clinical data, but, but we have, let's talk about Bradley's paper now that that's not, published, but it was just presented extremity war injuries. Um, he's down at Methodist Houston. He's, he's kind of the head of the orthopedic research down there. Um, he did more of, of what we do in the clinic. So these rotator cuff exercises, um, in, in professional, in professional athletes, baseball players. So did you guys, have you guys been able to look over that? Yeah. So we have the, the poster. Yeah. It was what, two times a week. For eight weeks twice a week for eight weeks yep and rotator cuff exercises so what was it it was it was cable column external rotation cable column internal rotation sideline external rotation and scaption so four exercises those are very rehab specific 
um, and, and easy to pull off. And, and two times a week is, is kind of in our rehab wheelhouse here. These are well-trained individuals who are already strong. So we're talking healthies. You know, this isn't clinical, unfortunately. But what Bradley found from that was that the muscle endurance was significantly better if you were in the BFR group. So one group did it with cuffs on. The other group did it without cuffs. And, and this is pilot. So the small numbers here, I, I forgot what, do you guys remember what he had? I think it was like, I think it's 15 or something, something like that. Um, yeah. The muscle endurance, especially with the external rotators was significantly better. Um, muscle size. So, so lean muscle mass was significantly better in the rotator cuff. Um, and that was on DEXA. Um, and, and then he also found that muscle activation was up significantly higher in the BFR group as well. And, and so what are, you, what are you guys thoughts when you first saw Bradley's poster presented and, and would that change the way that you look at doing proximal stuff at all? It, yeah, did, it, me. Was, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it yeah. did me. For sure. The results are great. You know, you look at um, fr- from the strength standpoint, again, I think it really goes to kind of the specificity of it all. When we talk about like muscle groups being active, if you look, the um, external rotation at zero degrees compared to external rotation at 90. So at zero degrees, we think predominantly infraspinatus, not maybe getting a lot of teres, but we have a significant increase in the BFR group compared to the uh, at 90 um, or at zero degrees in the control group that just didn't do BFR. Um, But um, so again, I mean, I think if we're going to do something proximal, this kind of does establish the, the, the importance of the muscle group has to be active. Right. Um, and we just can't put a cuff on and, and make the muscle group active. Right. And, right. And, and so just to put the details out too, he, he used 50% limb occlusion pressure in the upper extremity, uh, which is, which is what we kind of philosophize and, and teach and, and, uh, so he also did a little bit differently the way he did his sets and reps. Um, so, so it was a Delphi system. So we know he's getting, you know, the constant occlusion. Um, but he did 30, 15, 15, and then the last set to failure, um, right. which he said, you know, to him seemed like to kind of really push that muscle activation um, and, and that he kind of wants to skin the, the BFR sets and rep cat that way. In, in his yeah, next, I really like that. That's I, yeah. I do that a lot in clinic. Yeah, you know, that last set, you can tell, like get a little more in the tank. Keep I know. going. Yeah, you know, give me ten more, give me five more, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that definitely that helps in in some of those exercises where it's difficult to establish a one RM. Mm-hmm. And to get the percentage to, um, because I mean, the, the whole goal and what we do, ideally that third set of 15 is to failure. Yeah. And, um, and if they don't get that, then, then push on until we get there. Yeah. And, and right. you have to watch your numbers there. So if they're in the third set and they're at like rep number 40, <laughs> you know, your, your load was way off. So that, that yeah. failure one can help you figure, you know, you, you can say, I want you to fail at around 15. And if they're like 16, 17 and they're still going, you're like, I better get a little bit more load on this because because I really missed the target. Yeah. Um, and and it, and, that, and then in, um, you know, like I said, in, in the cases where it's hard to kind of get a one RM, like I always jokingly say, you know, someone comes into the clinic, you know, we're going to do straight leg raises. No one's going to come in and say, hey, Zach, you know, my straight leg raise is 23 pounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's always just an estimate initially. 
Um, and then you take that into a post-op situation as well. And it's always kind of a little bit of a, an estimate early on. And then once you kind of get things dialed in, ideally we do get to that failure in the third set of 15 or close, close to 15. Yep. Yep. Right. I thought it was really interesting in the study, the, that percent change in lean mass. I mean, I mean, doing these, you know, single joint movements for the, you know, the exercises, yeah, I don't think of those as typically driving a whole lot of uh, hypertrophy change in general, even with a little bit more loading, which it's hard to get more loading on those exercises anyway. But, um, yeah, that seemed pretty significant from from the poster. I mean, that's a pretty big change in on DEXA for those exercises. Yeah, for sure. And, and the EMG, you know, it peaked much quicker earlier with the BFR group. And overall, you know, the, the peak was, was relatively higher um, compared to the control. So, again, the, the BFR side, we're, we're getting this muscle activation, uh, which, which is really what we want to target in a proximal muscle. So not, a, not in a clinical model, but a clinical type study with very well-trained athletes um, showing these significant changes in rotator cuff strength rotator cuff size, um, and rotator cuff muscle activation and, and endurance. So, so now it's like, man, that's the easiest way to do it. So everyone's like, how do I get a proximal shoulder? Well, it looks like two times a week for eight weeks doing these exercises is, is pretty right on target, you know, in, in a healthy, it, it, it's going to get there. Right. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. and not to, to, take us down another rabbit hole on this podcast. But one of the things from that poster that looked interesting that I, I know, you know, we had talked about a little bit was the the changes in strength look, especially for internal rotation on the dominant arm are more significant than anywhere else. Yeah. And to have the biggest, you know, strength adaptation coming in the dominant arm, that's the best trained going in. Yeah, was interesting to me. I mean, I would have thought it would be on the non-dominant arm because there's more room for for improvement. Yeah, which is yeah, I, I, mean, I, I can't figure that out. I, I can't either. I mean, that's a that's a really interesting response. Yeah. And it was significant. So it wasn't just yeah. like yeah. it looks like it. It was the dominant was significantly better than the non-dominant, and, and more so than any other muscle group. Yeah, right yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're talking upwards of probably twenty three percent on the yeah. uh, on the rotators. I mean, it was, it was huge. Well. Right. You know whose attention it got um, was MLB. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Brad, you know, good on Brad, man. He uh, he got an MLB grant um, to study this at spring training right now. To to Because if, if we can make the dominant arm that much stronger and we yeah. can get muscle endurance, because that, that's what. So, you know, when we first were talking with MLB about this stuff, it's like I mean, it'd be great if we see pitching velocities go up. But then, you know, it's really what it's come around to is it'd be great if we see pitching velocity not go down throughout the throughout the innings. And so this whole muscle endurance um, is, is was kind of Brad's main target he wanted to go after. And, and so we'll see, man, if these guys are able to, to keep that arm where their pitching speeds are going to be tracking that their pitching speeds not go down. Yeah, the other interesting thing is with that, the endurance and the external rotators is, do we have like maybe um, an attenuation of injuries in these pitchers? Right, right. Um, well, I mean, because we're talking, that was upwards of probably close to 45, 47% increase in external rotation endurance. Yeah. Uh, which which is going to be huge. Yeah, I think the, the, the hard thing about baseball, getting into my world a little bit here, is, you know, those velocities start going up. The shoulder 
we're, we're a little bit less worried about the shoulder at some point and kind of more worried about the elbow. The elbow seems to be what's really breaking down more and more and more. I mean, you, you see guys go out on the DL, but in, 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 at least in the pitching population, you don't really see them go out nearly as often for the shoulder. I don't feel like as you do for the elbow. Right. Um, and so I, it, it's interesting to see those changes above, but I feel like, man, the change in their endurance and reducing injuries. And it's, man, that's all that you get into a whole different world of so many variables and, and, and things that, that people are doing differently in terms of baseball training now than, than they even were like five, six years ago. So, sure. but if they are able to increase their, their cuff size or cuff strength, endurance activation, yada, yada, is that going to decrease that eccentric load? Um, cause the shoulder is just able to, to handle it more and, and you're not stressing the elbow maybe quite as much, you know, cause I don't know if there's yeah. going to be a change in, in increase in velocity, but it's, it's decrease in velocity. And, and I think that's, that was kind of what Brad was at first. It was like, let's look at this clinically. Is this a way to reduce injury? And, and, and it seems like MLB was more like, well, let's look at this from a performance standpoint. Um, but we hope that they're able to track, it's going to be with a couple teams, um, you know, are there reduced injury rates throughout the season in the BFR cohort that was doing this during, during the spring ball. So, so we'll hopefully have that data to be able to look at. Cool. Okay. So that's easy, man. If I got a shoulder, just do kind of what we, I know we all do is we get the cuff on the shoulder. There's another shoulder study um, that's, that's registered with, with our guys down at Andrews um, with slap lesions. So, um, between Brad's work or hopefully our cuff study comes out and then, um, the slap study, we'll, we'll at least get some proximal answers here in the next few years. Um, or, you know, with the way research goes the next 10 years. Um, okay. But then let's, let's move into, um, to Eric's study. So this was Dr. Bowman, who's, who was at KJ Curlin Job out there. And now he's, he's over at Vanderbilt, um, sports doc. Uh, with Heather Milligan's good friend of ours and Greg Jew, the folks over um, at, at KJ Select. And, and so they did, again, more of let's see what the rehabby type exercises are like in a healthy population. So can you go through and not do, you know, the problem is these 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 academic studies. It's like, OK, I'm going to do this 30 percent one RM squat. Um, and we're going to do it two times a day for seven days a week and yada, yada. And it's like, man, I'll never be able to do that clinically. Um, that's great from maybe a mechanistic standpoint, but I, man, tell you the truth. I'm, I'm just having to reread this. Um, but can you guys break down exactly what exercises they did? Do you have it? In yeah, they did straight leg raise, sideline abduction, leg extension and leg curl. I like that they didn't do a squat because now we can at least if something's happened above the hip, it's not confounded by some multi-joint movement. Exactly. Um, they were they did isokinetic testing for knee extensors um, and knee flexors and then handheld dynamometry for hip abduction, hip extension, plantar flexion. Yeah. And then circumference measurements of the thigh and leg. And they did single leg heel raises. Yeah. Just in terms of their baseline and final measurements there. Yeah. Um, Endurance of the plantar flexors. Yeah. I, yeah. Again, I'm kind of working through it as we're looking at it here. But the, the, yeah. one, the one thing I thought, you know, they, the as far as the isokinetics, they really kind of went at a high speed with those. Um, and I really feel like, you know, they were at 180, 270, 300. I, I feel like 
I see most people kind of using more that 60 degree per second metric, at least in the knee extensor world um, in the ACL world, but it wasn't really what they were, wasn't necessarily the focus of their study, but it, it just kind of picking apart what numbers they use. Yeah. And that's, that's always a problem when you have these isokinetic studies is like, it's fine to go high speed um, if your coefficient of variance is okay, but no one ever puts that in their, in the study findings. Like we did 270 you know, degrees a second, but our CVs were like 30%. Um, so it's much easier to control those coefficient of variance at the slow speeds, especially in a healthy individual. Um, but the high speeds are fine. And, and we get some other interesting kind of things like that, like this, you know, I think the total work numbers are kind of better and, and things like that. But, but yeah, it would be always nice to see like where their CVs within line um, during those tests. But, but anyways, going into, again, their exercises, those are all like, post-op kind of mad exercises pretty much you know so this is something that anyone could maybe do um, if they rolled into your clinic and i'd had a knee surgery i'm doing my leg raises i'm doing my hip abduction uh, you know may or may not do something like a long arc quad and i could you know do like a hamstring curl Um, so very rehab boring ass exercises um, that in an injured person would do do you guys remember how what was it two times a week three times yeah two by six Two by six, two times a week for six weeks. Again, like Bradley's, very easy for us to say this is kind of following a clinical model that I can get a patient in hopefully two times a week for about six weeks postoperatively. And so let's go through what what they found here. Um, So they did CSA. What do do we have for – so it was tape measurements. So take it for what it is. And and people poo-poo stuff like this. But it's like, man, it's not a funded trial. This is just a pilot for concept, and there is a validity if, if you know, intra-rater is, is, is good with that as long as the same person's redoing it um, each time. So what, what do we get on that? Do you guys have numbers? Yeah, so um, what they the, – uh, the percent increase in um, thigh circumference on the BFR limb was 3.5%, and then um, that's for the thigh. The lower leg was 2.8. And then what we actually saw was um, on the non-BFR limb – was a 2.3% increase in the thigh circumference and a 1.2% increase in um, the leg. You compare that now with what they got out of the control group was uh, a 0.8% increase in the thigh and then a 0.4% increase in the, uh, in the lower leg. Uh, so what we see is we actually see significantly greater improvements in the thigh on the side in the BFR group that did not have the cuff on. Right. Um, so that's a, that was a that was a pretty cool finding from that study again. And, yeah. you know, so as, I think, again, it goes back to what we really started the podcast with was as long as we train a limb and we put a cuff on another limb, but don't have the cuff on the limb that maybe we need to target for whatever reason, right. we can see these um, these changes. Uh, effect, yeah. 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 Well, I think that's, that's one of the most commonly asked questions in the course is, is what about a cross transfer? I mean, does this, can we use it on another extremity, you know, talking about post-op hips or, or, or really anyone we're worried about getting it on the limb that has the incision, yeah. whether it's placement of the cuff or just the physician doesn't feel comfortable or the clinician doesn't feel comfortable. Exactly. Can I use the uninvolved side and create a stimulus that helps with what's happening on the affected side. And obviously we don't have great answers there, but it it looks like we we can potentially get some of that there. Yeah. And let's re-explain this too. So they did those exercises on both legs. 
but the BFR group, they only had the cuff on one leg. Um, they kept right. it on that leg throughout the duration of the study. That's correct. Right. right. And it was, it was, you know, they had the subjects choose the leg. So it wasn't necessarily yeah. dominant, non-dominant. Yeah. It was just, you know, preference. And, and also to get into specifics, 80% limb occlusion pressure, um, surgical Delphi BFR system, and they uh, 30, 15, 15, 15. So kind of the standard protocol um, that, that most folks use. And so strength then, what, what do we got on strength for BFR versus the non-BFR group? Yeah, so strength increased um, significantly in peak torque. Um, power in both knee extensors and then um, total work in the uh, the knee flexors, and uh, and then and when total measured, work for the knee extensors as well. Yes, right, right. Yeah. And then hip abduction isometric strength increased significantly in the BFR group um, compared to the control group, and then hip extension plantar flexor strength did as well, as did um, the percent increase in single leg heel raises. Yeah. So that change in single leg heel raises was, was pretty impressive as well. Yeah. Right. 4% compared to 28%. Yeah. Yeah. That was, and, that was huge. And really no, no calf exercise. Right. 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 And right. so that was you know, with the plantar flexion change as well as the hip extension change. I mean, there was significant response without a direct training stimulus for those movements. Right. Right. Which is interesting. Interesting. Scratch your head a little bit, but yeah, but still, you, you know, again, we're talking systemic and all this other stuff today. And, and then in the, um, in the non BFR limb, what changes we got to change in strength for, for what peak torque for the, for the quad. Um, and again, the single leg calf raise, we got a significant change as well. Um, mm -hmm. in the non BFR limb. All right. So, these are proximal changes in strength, way distal changes in strength. Again, a very easy rehab model to follow two times a week for six weeks. Just get your cuff on you know, 80% um, and, and able to, to show that these rehab exercises make pretty significant changes here. Um, what are, what are y'all's kind of parting thoughts on, on Eric's study? Yeah, I think it's pretty it's pretty good um, in the sense of uh, let's just say like you have someone with a um, like an Achilles tendon repair or maybe a, an ankle fracture where you're limited in what you can do. Mm -hmm. We can get these we can get a carryover um, without directly targeting the plantar flexors or doing an ankle specific exercise. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's also more to support the fact that like we've all talked about multiple times, just the you know, potentially using a, an unaffected stimulus or unaffected limb for a big enough stimulus. And then we still have to have some, some stress that's consistent on the limb that we want an effect on, as opposed to just getting this, this pure cross transfer or carryover without having enough of a stimulus on that limb. Right. All right. So let's put a bow on this. Um, the most recent papers, non-clinical, but I think we can translate it over. If I got someone with a shoulder issue um, and, and I can get them to where they're doing cuff type exercises, if I can get two times a week for eight weeks, it looks like um, I might get some pretty positive juice out of that. Um, so just put the cuff on. Let's go 50 percent LOP. Maybe take your final set to failure, um, which is what we always say we want. 
Um, but lots of times, you know, the patients still have some, some juice left. We, we missed our load that we need to have. And, and like we put in that ACSM paper, the proximal muscles probably really need something that gets mass, maximal muscle activation and gets them to failure. Um, so that's for the shoulder. Then for the lower extremity, doing rehabby Jane Fonda exercises, your, your hip abduction and straight leg raise and all of that. Quad stronger, calf stronger, hip stronger, increased thigh, calf size, um, more ability to do more calf raises. Um, so if I got a post-op person and they're just doing mat exercises, follow what we are doing, get the cuff on the involved limb if you can and, and have them go through their protocol with that. Or if for some reason, like, you know, someone I was just working with had a skin graft and it wasn't healed yet. So, um, at his donor site, so we couldn't put the cuff on the involved limb. So we had it on the other limb. Um, and then we, we did exercises on the uninvolved limb and then had him do his exercises with the involved limb afterwards, um, until that skin graft healed up. And then we get the cuff onto the other side. Makes sense from y'all's standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, yeah. You know, I want to say too, it's, it's crazy. Second one here, the cuff over the donor side graft, it's almost made the donor side graft completely go back to normal looking tissue. Crazy. Um, wow. so, yeah. So I, I, I want to get with the plastics guys and, you know, man, that's the real group to go after. Once you get into the plastic surgery world, you're making scars go away. Um, <laughs> got some real action there. Um, all right. So any, any final thoughts from y'all's side on, on this whole proximal thing, clinical pearls, what kind of studies you would want to see just to finish up here? I think we need a backflow study. I think we, yeah, nears establish that. Yeah, we definitely need that. I think it could be very easy. And, and again, yeah. this backflow studies, you're going to, I, you know, I would be very specific on what kind of system I'm using. Um, because again, we see if you pump these things up and do a few things, all of a sudden those will drift. They can't hold pressure, and you're you're probably allowing flow to go in. So you would need a, a system that, that holds pressure and maintains pressure the entire time. I, I think to see the maximum backflow. Any other thoughts from you guys? I think, in my opinion, we we pretty well covered it there. It's you know, obviously tar- you know, targeting proximal is a real thing. It just you know, get a get a stimulus that targets those proximal muscles, whether you're applying the cuff to the involved or uninvolved limb. Yep. All right. Well, the yes. clinical stuff's coming. So we've got uh, Alexander Franz's total hips work um, in Germany. It's ramping up. This rotator cuff trial looks like it's going to move forward. We got the slap trial down at Andrews, um, and Brad's going to be doing his his MLB stuff. So um, hopefully, we're going to start to see a, a lot more. Uh, research to back up, I think, what we were all seeing clinically. Sound cool. good, fellas? Very good. Yep. All right. Off, off to uh, work and travel again. So uh, thanks thanks again for coming on. And, and just to remind everyone, if, if you like our podcast, um, go on and, and, and please uh, um, subscribe to it and, and give us five stars. If you don't like it, just, just ignore it. Um, don't give us anything. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then um, next time we're going to interview uh, another researcher, and this is kind of the way we're going to format it this year is uh, have have someone 
on as a guest, and then we'll get together as a group and, and break down more topics. All right, fellas. Sounds good. All right. Any more coffee? Peace. Yep. Same. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.